share a couple brief thoughts tonight and uh, really thinking in terms of uh, Matthew 12 as well where Jesus uh, cites Jonah. It's an interesting passage in 12, uh, chapter 12 uh, as, as the leading up to Jesus making reference to the sign of Jonah. Um, he begins really at the beginning of chapter 12, maybe even before, but uh, certainly uh, you can see kind of a flow there, but they come to him and they ask him the Sabbath questions and different things. The Pharisees uh, noticed that the disciples were moving through the fields and became hungry and uh, began to take parts of grains from the field. So they confront Jesus. Uh, they look and look to his disciples and do what is, why are they doing what is unlawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus responds to that, uh, verses one through seven. Uh, then more teaching on the Sabbath as well in verses eight uh, through 13. Uh, 15 kind of is really interesting, but Jesus, uh, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as after these conversations as to how they might destroy him. Verse 15, but Jesus aware of this withdrew from there. Uh, many followed him and he healed them all and warned them not to tell who he was. And then Matthew tells us here in verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, or his smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Uh, it's interesting to me, as he's, uh, he's going to cite the, the Ninevites and the preaching of Jonah, uh, they're, they're Gentiles, so here he's citing this, building up to this, and the Gentiles uh, will hope in him. Uh, of course, uh, I mentioned this, I think, in the last message, but in verse 22, uh, they bring a deaf, uh, a blind, mute man to Jesus who is demon-possessed. And, of course, Jesus cast out the demon. The crowds were amazed. They were saying that this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said this man cast out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Uh, and notice how... Uh, how firm Jesus' confrontation is in this uh, discourse. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. <clears throat> How then will his kingdom stand? So if I, by Beelzebub, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. Uh, verse 33 through 37 it speaks there, talking about the consistency of their character with what they're teaching. And then that's when they come to Jesus in verse 38. 
Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And Jesus, uh, I think after these conversations, <laughs> particularly, Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now he cites particularly about Jonah that Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Uh, so he says the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Uh, now some people say that's the only reference Jesus was uh, pointing to in the, in, the, in the experience of Jonah. Uh, I'm not convinced of that. Uh, that was certainly the heart of it because it symbolizes the death and resurrection of Christ or is an is a illustrative of that. Uh, but I think there's more involved in the story of Jonah uh, that points to Christ, which I think is important in Jonah because that's the very root of the mercy that's being extended in Nineveh. Uh, in fact, Jesus brings that, that whole issue in in 41 because he says, in regards to that, the men of Nineveh will stand up with his, this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He mentioned even the queen of Sheba here, the queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Of course, Jesus is referring to himself. The kingdom of God has come to you because he's already said, for if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so, so he's, I think he's drawing more from the illustration of Jonah uh, than just uh, the three days and the three nights. That's the primary thing I'm absolutely sure because in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the fountain of mercy. And so that's the only sign given to a wicked, evil and wicked generation. They want him to lay out and check all the, uh, uh, dot all the I's and cross all the T's and we want you to prove to us that you're the Messiah. And there's no proving it to them at all because they had already determined that they were going to reject him no matter what. Just like, just like Jonah uh, was preaching to a wicked generation, so he's preaching as well to a wicked generation. And he says to them, that's the only sign you'll get. So I just wanted to think tonight, just sort of closing out our study in the book of Jonah, but just these uh, similarities uh, I, some people would call them types. I don't know if I would call them types, technically speaking, but there are certain similarities and portraits of Christ and his ministry in the life and ministry of Jonah. It doesn't mean Jonah is a Christ-like figure. Um, we've already established that Jonah seems pretty, pretty stubborn. In fact, uh, if Jonah is indeed the author of the book of Jonah, uh, he ends his own book without ever drawing, uh, telling us what his conclusion after the tree incident and the worm and all that was. We don't know. We don't know. And so it's almost as if Jonah left us hanging because he knows, he knows now, but he wants you to answer the question. Here's my experience. You think about this and what do you say? Should God be merciful? Uh, by the way, just as an introduction, we're going next to Zephaniah. Uh, or excuse me, Nahum, and so we're going to see the flip side of this coin. Uh, in Nahum, he's portraying God as very much different. Yes, he is indeed, as Jonah said, long-suffering and gracious and, and merciful and uh, slow to anger and relenting from calamity. But when you read Nahum, uh, he's portraying God in a, very, in a very different way, not excluding that, but certainly a different way. So just a few thoughts in regards to Jonah and then the similarities with Jesus. Number one is in verse one of Jonah, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. 
uh, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is coming up, come up it, uh, before me. Uh, as I've already mentioned, the name Jonah meant dove, and the name Amittai or Amittai uh, meant truth or word of truth. So I thought it was interesting, the parallels here that uh, Jonah, uh, in his letter here or in his book, uh, Jonah brought the word. Uh, he, didn't bring his own, he didn't bring his own ideas. He didn't bring his own Jewish. In fact, he was carrying some Jewish prejudice, obviously, against the Ninevites, but he, uh, and it leaked in somehow to how he felt about it, but it didn't affect the word that he proclaimed. Uh, he went away and wouldn't proclaim it first, but when he came back, he brought the word of the Lord. And as a, as a man whose name was Jonah, which meant dove, it might should have said, it might ought to have said something to Jonah about the nature uh, of the spirit of the man proclaiming that word as well. Uh, certainly we remember with Jesus' baptism, one of the signals to John that this was indeed the Son of God, the Messiah, was that a dove would descend upon him and light upon him uh, and identified him as uh, having the spirit without measure. So Jesus certainly, uh, in that sense, brought the dove, brought the fullness of the Spirit. And not only did Jesus bring the Word of God, He was the Word of God. John 1.1 says uh, the Word was with God and the Word was God in the beginning. So Jesus, there's, a, there's a portrait there, at least, in regards to Jonah's name. He's bringing the Word of God and he's bringing it to wicked generations. Uh, so that would be the second one. Obviously, Jonah was going and taking the word to a wicked generation, and certainly Jesus does because he says that in Matthew. A wicked and evil generation seeks after a sign. So Jesus is bringing the word. Uh, ultimately, the word that Jonah brought was judgment imminent, imminent, imminent judgment, or at least at the very minimum, judgment pending in 40 days. And so there was, uh, as I've already shared, there, they must have gleaned from the 40 days some delay in their judgment, and they hoped that perhaps that gave them time to turn. So, but they gleaned that themselves. But the essential message was destruction has been decreed or ordained for Nineveh, a wicked city. Uh, it's interesting that when Jesus first came on the scene, he really, he really picked up the preaching of John the Baptist, who was preaching what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is hand. Uh, he didn't initially uh, tell them in regards to the Savior. There's a Savior coming and all those. The command was judgment is pending. It is imminent upon you. Therefore, repent. The kingdom of God has come upon you. And Jesus, when he picked up his ministry, his public ministry, began to preach the same thing. The scriptures say Jesus began to preach the same message. Repent. And so in a sense, they're bringing this message of the condemnation of the world and the certainty of that. And certainly Jesus was going to provide a way that a fountain, as it were, for mercy to be extended in our generation, but also even as far back to, to Nineveh. The mercy that Nineveh received, I think, was from the fountainhead of what Christ would do. So there was a very, a lot of similarity in that they brought the word and the word ultimately was the judgment and justice and righteousness, if you will, of God. In both cases, although with certainly different, uh, different characteristics, Jonah essentially gave his life. He voluntarily gave himself in chapter 1. You remember me speaking there that whenever he went on board the ship and in his rebellion, the seas became rough and they wanted to uh, find out what was going on. So every man was to pray to his God. So he's on a ship full of idolaters. 
uh, heathens. This is not a, a, a Jewish ship. This is, a, this is a, a pagan ship, a heathen ship, and all these men are idolaters. So here's Jonah in the midst of that. Well, finally, uh, they finally determined that, the, that the, the peril they are in has been brought upon them due specifically to the sin of Jonah here. But my, the parallel here with Christ is that Jonah ultimately volunteers. In other words, what shall we do? And he says, you're going to have to kill me. And as I made the point when I was preaching through this, Jonah doesn't commit suicide. They don't, they don't overwhelm him and take him by force. Jonah acknowledges that the only relief, the only salvation for you on this ship is that I must be offered over the side. I have to be thrown over the side. I have to be offering up my life. You know, we don't have to think very hard to think of the similarities with Christ there is a voluntary sacrificial death. The only difference is Christ had no sin, which made him a proper sacrifice. Jonah was no sacrifice in terms of righteousness for those sailors. They still had to come to Christ and receive the, the mercy of Christ before they could be saved. But in their immediate circumstances, their life depended on the sacrificial death or the self-sacrifice of Jonah. Uh, when you read that in Jonah, you think, well, maybe Jonah's repenting here. Maybe he's understood that he ought not run from the Lord and he ought to change his heart. And he certainly does seem to have a change of heart in some ways in the fish's belly and the experience of drowning. And he does come back and he's obedient to go proclaim the word. But it doesn't seem like his heart's changed much because he's upset at the result. So, so there's a... This is not a direct a parallel to the ministry of Christ. Christ was sinless. And he gave his life for an eternal salvation, not just for temporal deliverances as Jonah did in this sake. So it's a voluntary sacrificial death. Interestingly as well that uh, Jonah died at the hands of, of the sinners, but I, I make the point that uh, they threw him overboard. He, he really died or would have died at their hands. As I said, he wouldn't throw himself overboard which was an interesting thing to me in the study. If I thought that the peril is on you guys because the Lord has come down on me hard and the only way you're going to live is if, I, if I'm off this ship. So, fellas, I'm sorry I brought this upon you. I make my way over to the side and I jump in. Jonah didn't do that. He simply told him, I'm the, I'm the, me being off the ship is key to your salvation today on this ship. And so... He submits himself into their hands and it says they cast him up, take him up, take him to the side of the ship in the storming seas and cast him off into the deep with certainly knowing that he would be dying in the deep. And so that's not coincidental, I don't think, even in the providence of God and, and how he worked things out, that it worked out that they were to throw Jonah in the sea because Obviously, the Lord knows what he's going to do. He knows the beginning from the end. And someday in the future, in time, Christ is going to cite this example as the only sign given to a evil and wicked generation. Well, if they'd go back and read the book of Jonah, they might be realize there's a whole lot more signs in regards to the fountain of the mercy that the Ninevites got. But they were so caught up in the resentment that they got it that they missed the source of the mercy that was extended to to, to Nineveh, which was the same source of their mercy. They were a wicked and evil generation and would not acknowledge that. So he had to die. Jonah died at their hands. Obviously, Jesus died at the hands of sinners. 
uh, certainly condemned by the Jews, but taken to the cross and crucified by the Romans, the Gentiles, and by sinful men. Uh, in Jesus' case, he had no sin. He, he wasn't deserving of death, but he took upon himself the death or the curse for sin. And he became cursed as it was and crucified at the hands of sinners. Uh, that's just, if you think about that, it's really stunning that Christ in all of his righteousness would submit uh, to wicked men. In fact, you would almost think, well, if you had to do it, you could find the, the most righteous man in the world. And even though he's acknowledged as a nature, as a sinner, but at least let the most righteous man, you know, graciously and with tears put Christ to death if he must be a sacrifice. But he goes to those who were actually celebrating his crucifixion. You remember how they came by the cross and wagged their heads. If he's the Christ, let him come down now. Then we'll believe. I mean, so, so he's the, the worst of sinners. Not just any sinner, not just the average guy who's a sinner by nature, but the, the, the self-righteous and the prideful and the murderous and the, and the mockers. They were all surrounding him and he was dying at the hands of sinners much like Jonah uh, was cast overboard by the hands of the idolaters whom he was dying to save in essence. So he was willing to throw himself over the side to save. So Jesus as well died at the hands of sinners. And the obvious one Jesus mentions in chapter, uh, in, in chapter 12 of Matthew is that the sign given to them most directly would be that just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the monster's belly in the New, King, in New American Standard, but the belly of the fish, uh, so too must the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. There's a distinction here. Uh, Jonah never died. Jesus did. And Jesus put off uh, this fleshly. He endured the fullness of the wrath of God and the judgment upon sin. If he doesn't die, if he just swoons as that theory goes, then there's been no death. And without his death, there's no atonement for the sin. He couldn't just go pour out some blood and measure the blood up. And when it met the death, there had to be a death. The shedding of blood is indicative of the death of the sacrifice. So the sacrifice must die. So there's a distinction here. Jonah didn't die. Now, to the sailors on board and to all who cast him over, he was as good as dead because you don't get thrown over the side in a storm at sea and sink under and survive it. So, so, so as far as type, type, typologically, in their mind, he was dying. So Jesus says, that's your sign. Just as Jonah was to them dead in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Essentially, here's your sign. Just as Jonah in the mind of those who threw him overboard died, so must the Son of Man really die. He's not going to be in the belly of a fish. He's going to be in the belly of the earth. He's going to go down into the grave. That's, uh, that's necessary. And so Jesus says to these religious leaders, you want a sign? You're an evil and wicked generation. Here's your sign. And I, like I said, I don't think that was, that's the central part of it because there is no mercy for Nineveh or for them without the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and without, without the gift of faith. There is none of that for them. So that's the central part of the sign. But if they'd gone back and read the book of Jonah and considered what was on display there, they would realize that they were... And they were rejecting the very source of their own mercy. Notice as well that Jonah was seen alive again. Uh, we know he's three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, but uh, after, after he seems to have understood now and he offers up his prayer and, 
understand some things, the Lord sends the fish to shore and he spits him out. So here's Jonah, the one who went over the side, who, who understood that his life would have to be sacrificed to spare the sailors on the ship and went down into the deeps and was sure that he was dead. And God sent mercy down into the depths in the person or in the, in the form of a fish who took him into its stomach and there he survived for three days. And, and as far as the world was concerned, Jonah was gone. But suddenly in three days, the fish swims up to shore and spits up Jonah. Jonah's alive again. As far as they're concerned, we saw Jonah. Someone say, no, we saw him die. We actually threw him overboard. There's no way he could have survived that way. He's, a, he's in Nineveh. We heard that Jonah's in Nineveh. So Jonah, though he were dead, yet he was risen, as it were, uh, metaphorically from the dead and he appears alive again to them. So Jesus says, so must the Son of Man, except Jesus really did die. And then he appeared again uh, to all those after his resurrection. So there's a lot of similarities involved in the life and ministry of Jonah and the ministry, life and ministry of Christ as well. And, and this is why I wanted to cap this off with this. Because the very mercy that Jonah was resentful that was extended to the Ninevites, was born, was, was pouring forth from this very Christ who's speaking in Matthew. And if you think about the, the sinfulness of what Jonah was doing, was he was minimizing or moderating again the sufficiency of that sacrifice. It's good enough for Jews, but it shouldn't be good enough for Ninevites. And that's exactly what the religious leaders were saying in Jesus' day. It's good enough for the Jews, we're the chosen people of God. But Gentiles, they're dogs. Despite the prophecies, Jesus says that he tells them, he goes and heals all these Gentiles. And it says specifically, they all came to him and he healed every single one of them. And then said, don't say anything to anybody. And then Matthew tells us, he said this to fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah, which says the Gentiles shall hope in his name. It's not a new revelation that God is reaching out to the Gentiles. He has been forecasting that from the very beginning. Even in the line of Christ, there are Gentiles being pulled in along to that line all the way along. But by the time of Christ's day, it's as if they had ruled out the Gentiles. God was the God of the Jews only. And Jesus and even Peter still had difficulty with that. You remember his sheet that was lowered down and all the unclean animals. So we had this prejudice. But the great sin of that is that you're minimizing or you're limiting the, the, the efficacy of the blood of the Christ. You're treading underfoot in some ways. You're minimizing the blood of Christ. If you think that mercy is off limits to some people. Now, as I said, Nahum's going to say that there is an end at which God will end his appeal, as it were, on mercy and the justice and judgment of God will come in full force. That's what Nahum is saying. We know that Ninevite in 150 years, anywhere from 115 to 150 years, went back to their wickedness. And in Nahum, God, he is calling out God's judgment coming upon them. They will this time be destroyed. There will be no mercy. They will not respond in the same way that they did under the preaching of Jonah. That's a serious, let me just say that is a serious, serious 
almost blasphemous view of the efficacy of the blood of Jesus Christ. If you harbor in your heart a reluctance or a resentment that any human being might receive the mercy of God, you are, you are calling into question the fountainhead of that very mercy. And that is a serious thing to do. Now, God may withhold it and he may exercise justice and judgment on one for his own glory as well. But that is in God's prerogative and in the counsels of his will. That is not for me, a recipient of that mercy, to, to help God to moderate who shall receive it and who shall not receive it. Because that is, a, that is an affront to the efficacy of the blood of Christ. And that's why that is so serious. And that's what stood out to me throughout the book of, of Jonah. And particularly in the book of Matthew, whenever Jesus cites that example, what does he say right on that heels of that? He says, the Ninevites, they will rise up in the judgment and stand alongside this generation, the one he was talking to. And they're going to condemn this generation. And you say, well, why would they do that? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. They, they received mercy and they responded to this mercy and they repented. They put on sackcloth and ashes. They abandoned their wicked ways and God relented and concerned the calamity that he had forecasted upon them. They heard the pending or imminent judgment of God and God enabled there to, to be repentance there. And so there was mercy there. They heard Jonah preaching and they repented. You know why they're going to stand up and condemn this generation, Jesus says? Because there's the very fountain, the very source of that mercy Jonah preached about is here in front of you. And that's amazing stuff to me. No wonder the Ninevites, not only them, but the queen of the south who traveled all that distance to hear the overwhelming wisdom of Solomon, she's going to stand up in that generation as well because Solomon was really a secondhand wisdom. He was receiving it from God and speaking out that wisdom as God had given him the gift to do so. But there's one greater than Solomon here. This is the source of the wisdom of Solomon standing in front of you. You want to know why the queen of the south and the Ninevites are going to stand in judgment and condemn that generation and by the way this generation is because we have the advantage of hearing the seeing and knowing about the very fountain of our mercy and the very wisdom of God Almighty and how much more guilty or, or irresponsible shall we be than those who heard it in ages past. So the Ninevites will stand up and say, Jonah, come to us. And he declared to us the righteous judgment of God on our wickedness. And God, by his grace, provided for mercy. And we heard the call and we felt grieving and mourning for our sinfulness and our wickedness. And we knew that God would be perfectly just in destroying us for our wickedness. Yet we repented and we turned away and we put on sackcloth and ashes and sat in ashes to be indicative of our brokenness of inward man. And God granted and relented from our destruction and look at our generation look at our generation we've got the very word of, the, of God here this is the inspired God given word of God we have a witness right in front of us in our generation but this wicked and, and generation that we live in wants a sign give us a sign something give us a sign in heaven or some some supernatural thing or spiritual feeling that we'll know that it's you you've got everything you need right before you we've got a whole history 
of Christ, the incarnate Christ, coming, living righteous life, dying sacrificially, giving his life over for sin. We have the testimony of the apostles of the word of God. We have him, the word of God, and the spirit of God right here as a testimony. How much more deserving of judgment would we be than the Ninevites if we reject the very source of the mercy that they received? I think that's the message that Jesus is sending and speaking to those in Matthew. Turn there, look in that last phrase there. In verse 43, I'll close with this, but I, I'm not real sure. There's, there's different ideas about what he's saying here and meaning here. I tend to think that he's speaking of the purifying effect of having been in the covenant people of God. They are set apart. They have great advantages in that they are recipients of the covenant. But he says here now when the unclean, after he talks about this judgment, now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unusually unoccupied. It's been cleaned out. It's unoccupied. It's swept and put in order. All, it, it's, it's almost as if it's prepared for a, a residence, someone to take up residence there, but there's nobody there. When the unclean spirit goes out, the place is unoccupied and it's cleaned up and garnered and swept as though it's waiting for its, its true recipient or its true resident to take up dwelling. But he says he comes back and the, the spirit comes back and there's nobody there. So what does this spirit do? It goes and not only does it take up residence again there, but it takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there and the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. And then he says to them, that is what is ha will happen to this evil generation. And I do believe that it has to do with the revelation that they had received. These that are speaking right to the Messiah right here. They had received the revelation. They had been partakers of the promises and the covenants all the way down through the years. It's as it were God had set them apart and in doing so had prepared the place for the residency of the Holy Spirit whenever he would come to dwell upon Christ's sacrifice. So, so they had been prepared to receive this very one. And yet they're standing here saying of this one, he's working by by the power of the devil. And so Jesus says, essentially, the unclean spirit that was pushed out of them by that came back and said, hey, this place is like it's been fixed up for somebody, but nobody's here. So we'll just move back in. So the, so the evil that was pushed out to make way for the spirit comes back full force and brings more evil with them. And so now the last state of them is worse than the first state. Now, they, now they've had all these advantages and yet they are rejecting the true resident of their heart which would be the Lord and the person of the Holy Spirit and now they're emptying out now so they're wide open to more evil than they had to begin with. And Jesus says that's the way it will be with this generation. This generation that seeks a sign. Go read Jonah. Maybe that ought to be what we say to this generation. You want a sign? Somebody ask you, what, what sign? Give us a sign that Jesus is coming back soon or, or something like that. Just maybe try Jonah's preaching or try Jesus' response. Go read the book of Jonah. Read it. 
Read it and hear carefully and pray that God would give you understanding and what's in display there because there are two things going on there. The righteous indignation of God and the just condemnation of wicked men and the window of mercy. Go read it very well to our generation. So those are just a few concluding thoughts. Stand with me tonight. and um, uh, Joan, if you want to read ahead in Nahum and see the other side of this, which is terrifying, uh, terrifying. Uh, that's what the Ninevites faced uh, apart from the mercy of God. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for mercy. I thank you for the truth of your word and how it comes to bear so, so perfectly in every generation. Lord, we do live in a wicked generation. In some ways, we may be as wicked as any other generation that's ever lived. And we seem to have an advantage because we have the technology to spread our wickedness at a frantic pace. And we see it escalating not only nationally, but globally as well. We are that evil and wicked generation. Father, I believe we all know instinctively as Christians that to be a Christian and to be faithful is going to be more and more difficult as these days and weeks and months and years go by. We know from Nahum that even in the repentance of Nineveh, there was a generation that perhaps didn't hear the preaching of Nineveh and didn't see the re, uh, of Jonah and didn't see the repentance. And within a within a hundred years almost, that nation had returned to its sinfulness and maybe even exceeded its own earlier sinfulness and how easy it is for us to do that as well. We live in a nation, I believe, that was once centrally at least Judeo-Christian in its morality, but Father, in a few short hundred years, it seems as though we've gone far away from those realities. So we just ask for your mercy, Lord. We pray that you would help us to be faithful as believers to not only proclaim the truth, but live out our faith as well. There's nothing more destructive to the Christian testimony than an inconsistent life when we live one way and tell others they ought to live another way. So, Father, help us to be set apart unto you. Help sanctification to, to take place more fully in our lives by your word and by your truth and by your spirit. Bless those who've come tonight, Father. We, uh, we do pray for the American... American Heritage Girls Ministry is that we have a charter here. We pray that you would use that as an instrument and be with those who are leading. And Father, make them sensitive always to opportunities to share the gospel with young ladies and to not only point them to practical good and respect and integrity and such things, but Father, to the ultimate good, which is Christ himself. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.